Today's scripture is Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadad and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, good morning, and thank you that it's our privilege to be in worship today. It's been six days since we've been together, and we need to be here to realign what is really important to help us in our thinking, and because the world can fall apart in a few short hours. And so, Lord, for some who are here today, this last week has not been a good one. For others, it's been filled with joy, with new experiences. Others, it's been a normal week. And regardless, we're all here because we all have the same need, and that is we need to hear from you. And so whether in this room or listening online or via the web today, we pray that you would speak now. We, we want to receive your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible. Let's go over to Exodus 28 and 29. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus, and we're looking right now at the matter of the tabernacle. And last week we learned that the tabernacle was designed to be a place of sanctuary, In the midst of a world that is broken and marred by the effects of sin, the tabernacle is designed to be a harbor, a place that brings order in the midst of chaos, safety in the midst of a world that is just terribly broken. And I suggest to you that the tabernacle was not only that kind of place, but the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be that place. And so I don't know where God finds you today, but I hope that today, as you meet in worship that there could just be a sense of harbor, a sense of peace, order in the midst of chaos. Last week I talked a little bit about the effects of um, 
Um, this idea of being a safe harbor in the midst of a culture that increasingly seems to be losing its way. If you weren't here last week, I spoke a little bit at the end, seven pastoral thoughts on the Supreme Court decision and some cultural things. If you weren't here, I would highly suggest that you, um, you get that copy of that manuscript. Because I talked just about what it is that I see happening in our, our land and also how to be able to realign our thinking. It was helpful for me just to be reminded of the reality of what it means to be a believer in the world. I needed last week's worship really badly, but you know what? I need this week's worship as well, because life leaks, doesn't it? Our sense of mission and purpose leaks, and we need to be reminded as to what is really important and what is significant in life. You know, the reality is every single person on planet Earth worships. You worship, I worship. I don't care what your church background is, every single one of us worships. The question is not if you worship, the question is who you worship. In fact, this Monday begins a significant worship season for 1.5 billion people around the globe. Monday evening is the beginning of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. And this last week I received a, um, a packet, a 30-day prayer guide. And Nate and I were talking about this, and it just struck me that the next 30 days, people all around the world are going to be praying, believing that those prayers make a difference in terms of their standing before God. And I thought it would be fitting to encourage a number of you to join me in praying for Muslim countries, Muslim people around the world, that they could be released from the bondage of this continual treadmill of works. In the month of um, Ramadan, let me just say this, that we'll be handing these out as you leave. And if you commit to pray every day for the next 30 days, if, if you can't do that commitment, don't, we have limited supply of these, don't take one. But this gives you a guide as to how you can pray uh, for folks who are in bondage in a religious system that has convinced them that they have to do this in order to merit God's favor. During the month of, of Ramadan, these folks will refuse to eat or drink anything from sunrise to sunset. And Nate and I were talking, and he said, you know, even the most spiritual Muslims, they won't even swallow their own saliva from sun up to sundown. Now, that just made me swallow. <laughs> Did that make you swallow? Just try doing that for 10 minutes. It'll just, you'll, you'll feel gross. You'll want to spit. Don't do that in church. But then you'll, there's a sense of just almost the impossibility. But they're doing that for the purpose, listen, of trying to get a right standing with God and hope that they can do all of this fasting so that when they stand before God, there'll be enough good works to level the scale of all of the bad things that they've done. And folks, there are 1.5 billion people who are worshiping a false God trapped in a works-based treadmill who have no joy, no freedom. All they see of God is this God who they have to earn favor. And today from Exodus 28 and 29, I want to show you how unbelievably different Christianity is. I want to show you the trap of that treadmill of works and the fact that it doesn't lead to joy and happiness. And as you leave today, I want you not only filled with grace and love and joy for what God has done for you, I want you burdened for the world or for a neighbor who doesn't understand the beauty of what it means to behold the beauty of the Lord. So today we're going to talk about two key ideas, that being the idea of mediation and consecration, and we're going to see this in the context of the first priests. i got to warn you, the text that we're dealing with is very technical. I'll do my best to, to cover it as thoroughly as we need to without um, boring you to death with overly uh, intricate detail. I want you to stay with me because at the end, I'm going to link this to the beautiful 
sacrifice of Jesus, who was both the mediator and the sacrifice all in one. So we, we learn about the priests today and this concept of mediation and consecration. And by that I mean this. Mediation is bringing two parties that are not reconciled together. That's what mediation means. And consecration meaning, means to take something that isn't sacred or isn't holy and making it holy. And, and this is the, these are fundamental concepts to what the gospel in the New Testament and in the Old is all about. And we see them demonstrated and highlighted in regards to the first priests. We, we see the way in which the garments were designed, the way in which they were sanctified, the way in which they were presented captures the essence of what the gospel is. And essentially it's this, that human beings need a mediator and human beings need to change their condition from unholy to holy. And the question is, how do you do that? And of course, the biblical answer is you can't. Only Jesus can do that for you. So let's dig into this. Look at chapter 28. We see here the uh, the first element of the priests, and that is that they are to be a mediator. Chapter 28 provides very specific instructions regarding Aaron and his sons and how they are to serve. And essentially their role of mediator is that they are going to present the people before God. Therefore, the garments that the priests are to wear are not just about their clothing. The the garments are representative of something even greater. Look at verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now, we're not just talking about nice threads. We're talking about garments that have a message in them. Look at verse 3. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. This is a little sidebar here, but notice, we're going to see this also in chapter 31, that there were people who God filled with the spirit in order for them to make the garments that Aaron and his brothers are going to wear. This is really important, lest you make the mistake of thinking that God only empowers people who have public, upfront speaking gifts. This week, there'll be a thousand children here, and there will be people filled with the Spirit proclaiming the gospel, filled with the Spirit leading worship, and there will also be people filled with the Spirit serving cookies. People filled with the Spirit doing registration. People filled with the Spirit who have made sets and designs. And I just want you to understand that if you, if you have one of those behind-the-scenes gifts, like if you see what happens up here and you'd be like, kill me before I ever have to come up on this stage, and that's your, your optics, and that's how you see life, you know what? God, by His Spirit, can fill you and use you in any arena, and you need to go use those gifts for the glory of Christ and realize that God, by His Spirit, uses that for the benefit of the body. We'll see this not only here, we'll also see it in regards to the tabernacle. So the clothing that these priests wear are significant. There are six garments that are listed. We're only going to cover four today. Those garments are listed for us in verses um, 15 all the way to 43. The, The garments are these, the breast piece, the ephod, the robe, the turban, the coat, and the sash. And it's the first four that are the most important. The first one we're going to look at is the ephod. It's It's listed in verses 6 to 14. Let me show you a picture of what the ephod looked like. The ephod is the multicolored garment that's the vest that's underneath it that's tied with the sash. 
It's not the multicolored uh, breast piece, but it's the, it's the multicolored sash. And that multicolored sash was designed, uh, or wrapped with a sash, the multicolored vest rather, was designed to have the same color scheme as the tabernacle. The point being is that the priest represents the people and he is connected to the ideas communicated in the tabernacle. And the most important part of the ephod are what are on his shoulders. Joining the kind of the two pieces of this vest are two onyx stones. Look at verse 12. Significance of these stones are listed for us in this text. It says this, You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. So we have two stones that are sort of joining the ephod together. Stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So engraved on these onyx stones were the names of the the, the tribes of Israel in the birth order, and Aaron was to wear these stones on his shoulder. And the idea is that when he goes into worship, he's bearing on his shoulders the names of the people of God. So he is coming as their representative. He will bear, the text says, their names before the Lord. So just keep this in mind because this mediatorial role is really important and it's really fundamental to what the gospel is. As the people all don't go into the holy place and they certainly don't go into the holy of holies. Only Aaron goes in and when he goes in, he goes in as their representative. That's the ephod. Next we have the breast piece. It's in verse 15 says, you shall make a breast piece of judgment. Now, if you have a NIV translation, it says a breast piece for making decisions. So don't think this uh, uh, this as judgment, like judgment penalty, but breast piece of for making decisions. And what this was, was a piece of folded fabric. It was sort of a pouch. And on the front edge of that pouch that you see right there in the sort of the, the chest area were 12 individual stones, each representing the various tribes of Israel. And then within that pouch, folded fabric, were two other stones. Those stones were called the Urim and the Thummim. The word Urim means light and Thummim means dark. And these stones were sort of the early stones for casting lots. And essentially, the Urim and Thummim were used at particular points in Israel's history when a, a big national decision needed to be made. The law didn't speak to it. There was no word from the Lord from a prophet. The people were praying and praying and praying and they didn't know what to do. And in those occasions, the Urim and Thummim were used to determine God's will where they would, the priest would reach into that pouch and the one stone was white and one stone was black and whichever stone he pulled out, that was what God's answer was. And the people in faith believed that God was going to answer them by virtue of that casting of lots sort of system. The, the point of this is that God not only welcomes Aaron into his presence as the representative of the people, but God also uses this man, Aaron, to communicate his will. He comes with the 12 stones on the breastpiece. He bears the individual names of Israel on his heart. Verses 29 and 30 Help us to understand this tone even further. It says, so Aaron, this is chapter 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. So just catch that imagery. He's going to bear the names of the people of Israel on his heart. 
when he goes into the holy place to bring them to to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord continually. So the idea is not only that Aaron represents the people to God, but notice this, he also represents God to the people. It's not just that he bears the names on the shoulder pieces, but it is that as Aaron goes in, he brings the people to God, but also he contains within that breast piece the very will of God, so to speak. So there's a conduit that's happening between people and God and God and the people. So that's the ephod, the breast, pa- the breast piece. The next is the robe. It's in verses 31 to 35 of Exodus 28. Verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. So it's a, it's a blue robe. It goes underneath the ephod. And on top of the ephod is the breast piece. And the most important part of the robe are what are at the ends or at the hem. Verses 33 to 34 tell us what's there. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. Verse 34, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. So the idea is around the hem, there were bells. And we're not exactly sure what the bells were for. We might think that it's one of maybe two reasons. First, it may have been a way for the priest when he going into the tabernacle to announce his presence. As opposed to just kind of waltzing into God's presence. In a similar way that when you go home, you don't normally ring the doorbell, right? You just walk in. But if you did that at your neighbor's house, they'd look at you like, what are you doing, right? Because you don't have the right just to walk into somebody. So the idea may be that these bells indicated that Aaron is walking into God's presence, an aspect of respect. The other thing could also be that as he's moving through the tabernacle, there would be this this noise. Think of almost like a sleigh bell, this kind of jing, 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 jing as he's moving throughout the tabernacle. Most of the people would have been outside, obviously, the tabernacle. So their connection to what's happening inside was hearing of the bells that were ringing. Part of me kind of wonders if every once in a while they heard those bells and then heard them stop and they're like, uh-oh. And then they heard them ringing again, like, oh, okay, good, he's still alive, everything's still good, and he hasn't done anything wrong inside of there. But those bells were a connection, perhaps, between what happened inside the tabernacle and then what happened outside. All right, the last piece is that of the turban. And we find this in verses 36 to 38. The, the, the head of the priest was covered with this turban, but the most important part of the turban was a plate of pure gold. Verse 36 tells us that it was to be engraved with a signet that said, Holy to the Lord. So on this turban, there's this, there's this gold metal plate, and so on Aaron's head would have been this statement, Holy to the Lord. So he's got... The names of Israel on his shoulders. He's got the individual names of the tribe on a breast piece. He's got bells and the hem of the garment. And the turban that he wears has holy to the Lord. And remember, this is the man who's taking the sacrifices of Israel. He's taking blood into the tabernacle proper. He's making atonement on behalf of the people of Israel. And he has this phrase over top of him, holy to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 38 tells us, Really, the point, it says this, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt 
from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the idea is that there's these, these, these people who are not naturally acceptable to the Lord and there's this intermediary, this priest, who is the go-between between a holy God and them. It's the same thing that happened at the base of Mount Sinai. When, when they're at the base of that mount, mountain and Moses has put barriers around the mountain and God is up on the top of the mountain, he brings the law down and he reads the law to the people of Israel and they say to him, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us because we'll die. And Moses goes up on the mountain and back down to the people. And so embedded in the whole idea of the gospel is that there are people, that's us, and you can't just come into God's presence as you are. There's something fundamentally wrong, and embedded in this is the idea that you need a mediator, a mediator who can bring your needs and your issues before the presence of a holy, righteous God. So these priestly garments are not merely ceremonial clothes. They are symbols of this important idea of mediation. People need a mediator. That's the point. Here's the second thing. In chapter 29, we see the matter of consecration. Consecration means to be set apart or to be made holy. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, This is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So they need to be consecrated, and that assumes something. It assumes that naturally, in their normal condition, they would not be consecrated. And again, this is, this is Christianity 101. This is Gospel 101, and that is this. Human beings, by our very nature, are not acceptable to a holy God. And so the question is then, how can human beings be br- brought near? How can we draw near to a God in worship who is holy? Back in Exodus 19, that whole picture of God on the mountain and the people below and you can't go up to God. The message, as I summarized it for you, was this, God likes you, but he is not like you. And if you don't understand that, you will not understand the gospel. Don't get me wrong, God loves you, but listen to me, he is not like you. He's holy, you're not, that's a problem. And that's what the gospel comes to answer. And what we see is this need of consecration And how are people consecrated in the Bible? They're consecrated by death. Something has to die. Happened in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and and Eve sinned, God clothed them. He clothed them with animal skins, animals that he had killed. That death is a product of sin. And so as a result, there are a number of sacrifices that are offered here in order to consecrate Aaron and his sons. The first offering is a sin offering. And we find this in chapter 29, verses 4 to 5. It says, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Wash them with water. Just take the garments and put on Aaron the coat, the robe of the ephod, the ephod, the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. So they're going to get him all dressed up. Verse 10. Then you shall take the bull before the tent of the meeting. Now don't, don't miss that little word bull. This is a big animal. A very valuable animal. I mean, you lose your bull back then, that's, someone's gonna get in trouble for not closing the gate, right? A bull is a very valuable animal, it's a large animal. 
It says you are to take the bull before the tent of the meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. So just get this in your head. They come over, and they all lay their hands on this extremely large animal. This is the sin offering. And then as soon as they have placed their hands on the head of that bull, it's slaughtered right there in the tabernacle. Can you imagine the amount of blood? This large animal that has just now been killed. Then a portion of that animal, a small portion, is then put on the altar of the burnt offering. Things like its intestinal fat, the liver, and two kidneys. But here's the thing. But the rest of the bull is to be taken outside the camp and burned. Other offerings are going to be burned on this altar, but not this one. This one, the the entire bull, except for these few little parts, is going to be taken outside of the camp to be burned. And here's the reason. Because it is the sin offering. For those of you who know a little bit about the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, you'll know that Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the camp. See, the amazing thing of the death of Jesus is that he becomes this sin offering. The sin offering couldn't be offered inside of the tabernacle area because it was the sin offering. It had to be offered outside the camp, outside of the tabernacle, outside of the entire encampment. And so this bull is offered. That's the first offering. The second offering is a ram. And there's going to be two rams that are offered. This is the first of two. Again, Aaron and his sons put their hands on this sacrifice. It's killed. And then the blood of this ram offering is thrown against the side of the altar. We see this in chapter 29, verse 15. And 16, it says, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the side of the altar. Verse 17, Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails, its legs, put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. So the whole ram is going to be on this altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now when I hear this word pleasing aroma... I mean, I know what they're talking about, right? I mean, there's times in the summertime, you know, I'm outside, and I'm like, man, somebody is grilling something good, right? Or last night I was flipping some burgers, you know, I got this big smoke pile going up, and it's wafting up in the sky. I'm not doing some food offering. This is my food, right? But the point is, is that in the, in the tabernacle courtyard, there was regular sacrifices, regular food, but notice that, that this was being completely offered In a moment, we're going to see another sacrifice that wasn't just offered, but it was also grilled or boiled, and part of it was eaten. But this one is totally offered to the Lord. So we have a a sin offering that happens outside of the camp. We have this ram offering, a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. That's the first ram offering. Now we have a second ram offering as well. And this is the final one. And this is specifically in order to consecrate Aaron and his sons. So the first offering was for sin. Second one was just simply a gift, an expression to God out of love and gratitude. The third one is actually for their consecration or ordination into the office of priesthood. Look at chapter 29 and verse 19. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And on the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet. And throw the rest of 
the blood against the sides of the altar. The idea being that they're connecting the the head-to-toe consecration of these servants with the sacrifice of the altar. That's why they're throwing the blood against the altar. That's why they're anointing them with blood from the top of the head to the sole of their feet. Look at verse 21. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar. Moses likely swiped his hand on the altar, grabbed some of the blood, mixed it with um, anointing oil, and then he sprinkled it on Aaron and his sons. He and his garments, the text says, this is verse 21, shall be holy, and his sons and his garments with him. Then what happens with the sacrifice is that part of it is taken, put in the hands of Aaron and his sons, and then put on the altar as though they are actually offering it. So the sacrifice was cut up, put in the hands of Aaron and his sons, then put on the altar, and then something fascinating happens In verses 31 to 34, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. So don't miss the fact that in the midst of the sacrificial moment, they're not only sacrificing, but they're also taking part of the sacrifice and they're cooking it and eating it. Verse 33 is key. They shall eat... Those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. Do you see the connection to the Lord's table? Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. He says, take, eat. The point is this, is that they were to eat those things with which atonement was made. So you have three sacrifices, sin offering, ram offering, second ram offering. And what you need to know is that these were not one-time event sort of offerings. Verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I command you, through seven days you shall ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. So get this, it's not just one bull and two rams one day. This is repeated seven days in a row. This is a a, a week-long consecration sort of, of moment. And there is a perpetuity then that is established from this point forward. Verse 38, it then says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. So every Every single day there was a sacrifice going. One lamb, verse 39, you shall offer in the morning. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So the idea is that there is just this perpetual rhythm of sacrifice that's happening in the context of the life of Israel. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Israel's life, don't miss this, is marked by continual bloody sacrifice. And why? Because God is holy and they are not. In order for them to be right with God, something has to die. In order for them to approach God, somebody else has to approach God on their behalf. But these sacrifices are not the ends in and of themselves. They are a means to another end. The sacrifices are leading to what we find in verses 42 to 46. Here's what it says. The text says this, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. 
There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Here's the goal. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Here is the end game of all these sacrifices. It is so that God can dwell among sinful people. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year after year, every morning, every night, all these sacrifices needed to be given. Why? Because people are that sinful and God is that holy. And in order for Him to dwell among them, in order for the Creator God to live among His people, the reality is their sinfulness has to be covered and it has to be covered by the sacrifice of something else that died. The point is this. That in order for a human being, whether an Israelite or an American, to have a relationship with their Creator, something has to die for them and someone else has to mediate it for them. I want you to understand this because this is so not only fundamental, but frankly, it's life-changing. In order for you to be right with your Creator, something or someone has to die in your place, and you cannot do it on your own. This is why the month of Ramadan, to me, is so tragic. The loud and clear message from the tabernacle is this. I'm the problem, and I can't fix it on my own. This is where Jesus enters into the equation and that the consistent theme of the Bible is that we need a mediator who is consecrated so that we can be brought near. I think that the greatest barrier to people coming to faith in Christ is coming to the point where they realize, I really can't do this anymore on my own. I try and fast, and I do all these good works. I I have all these, these reasons why I'm better than most people. Until a person is stripped of all of that, and they come to the point where they realize, I can't self-atone, I need someone else to help me. This is the fundamental humbling that Christianity requires, and it is the means by which God applies grace to the heart, where somebody finally realizes, you know what, I cannot make it on my own. I need someone else to help me. Everything about the sacrificial system was meant to be a prelude to the sacrifice of Jesus. If you have a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 9, and let me show you the connection here. Hebrews chapter 9 helps us to see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice and its connection to this Old Testament model of a mediator and consecration. This text just wants to sing. It says this, But when Christ appeared, this is Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all. Don't miss that. 
No more sacrifices. Day after day after day after day. Here comes a sacrifice who is both the mediator and the offering. And he enters once for all, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What does this mean? It means that Jesus becomes the mediator and the offering. He becomes the priest and the sacrifice. He merges the offices of priest and the sacrifice that was to be offered. So here's what happens. It is that the sinless Son of God becomes the sin offering so that sinful people could be declared holy when in fact they are not. It's unbelievable. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him sin to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is grace that is marvelous, that is infinite, that is matchless, and that is freely bestowed to all who believe. So how are you made right with God? You're made right with God by putting your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, not on your works. Fasting from sunup to sunrise, won't work. All the good deeds that you do, it won't work. Being better than somebody else around, it won't work. At the end of the day, the kingdom of Christ is entered when you come to the realization, I am a horrible, wretched sinner, and I cannot change who I am, and I can't save myself. And you come to a point where you say, Jesus, I'm done. Would you come and just take over? And that is what the gospel is. It is a complete takeover by the glorified and resurrected life of Jesus. And then, with that as our focal point, we approach God and our worship and our relationships with one another in an entirely different way. Go over to Hebrews 10.19. Hebrews 10.19 says this, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why is He saying that? Because nobody could draw near before. You couldn't draw near unless something died. You couldn't come into God's presence. And now the floodgates are open because Christ has entered once for all. And so God, the Father, says, come, come. Are you weary? Are you worn out? Are you tired? Are you frustrated? Are you alone? Then come, come, come. Because the sacrifice has already been made. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. And then he says this, and this is really important. If in the last three days or the last week or the last month, your life has just fallen apart. It says, let us hold fast the confession of God, our hope, without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. In other words, you put your faith in Christ the first time. You keep putting your faith in him over and over and over and over and over. It means... That coming to faith in Christ means that you say, look, I can't do this. 
And the rest of your life, you better keep saying, I can't do this. The worst thing in the world you could say is, no, I got it. Because you don't got it. You don't got nothing. (laughs) The worst thing you can say is, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm better than so-and-so. I'm better than this. Or, no, Lord, I got this thing. The best thing in the world you can do is when you come to the point and say, Lord, I, I I don't know how to do this. We really candid with you. Guys in the tech booth and underneath the stadium will verify that first service did not go very well from a preaching standpoint. And I went back into that back room, lit up my notes, and I said, Lord, I, I don't know if I can do this. This is confusing. It's complicated. It's a mess. I got lost in the text. My slides got all messed up. And, and you know how I came out from there to here? Not with, I got it, because I don't got it. I got nothing, Right? I came out saying, Lord, in faith, I'm simply going to try and teach what I think you showed me in this text. And at the end of the day, it's up to you. And you know what? That's all, that's all it is. And so you, you, I come out from the green room in faith. And the next morning, I'm going to wake up in faith. And that's what you and I are supposed to do every single day by faith. And you know why you can do that today? Because you have a high priest who entered in the holy place and offered a sacrifice so that you could have free access to the Father. So that Jesus says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. And I will help you when you need grace. Come to me because I'm ready to pour it out upon you. This is the high priest. This is a high priest who personally came and bought your redemption, who gives you hope. Not a priest you have to fast in order to earn his favor. You have to worry about if you're swallowing your spit or not, if God's going to be mad at you. Or somehow earn his favor and try and do better than most so that his, his, his wrath won't be upon you. Can you imagine living like that every single day wondering, is God pleased with me or not based upon what I've done? What a horrible, awful way to live. Such misery and torment and bondage stuck in this awful cycle, this treadmill of always trying to perform, knowing that there's no way you could actually perform. And the beautiful hope of the gospel is this. You don't have to perform because Jesus performed. You don't live on performance. You live on promise. The promise that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. About two years ago, I was in a closed country talking to some Muslim students. One of our missionaries had done a great job in reaching. He'd even given them a copy of one of our worship services on a DVD. So we're sitting over lunch, and they said, you know, I've, I've watched your, your worship services on DVD. And I said, you did? I said, what'd you think? And he said, oh, it was really interesting. What I can't figure out, though, the person said, is this. You sing so much. And I said, you know why we sing? Do you know why we sing? I said, no, why do you sing? I said, here's why. Because we sing because we're happy. We sing because we're free. So the beautiful reality of the gospel means how could you not sing with the fact that you have a mediator who has paid the atonement for you. He's purchased your life by his own blood and he's cleansed you of all of your sins. This mediatorial role that we see in Aaron and we see in the garments and we see in the sacrifices, they're all a precursor to set it up for the beautiful sacrifice that comes with Christ that once and for all he enters into the holy place and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are put 
at his feet. And this King of kings and Lord of lords will one day come and make everything right. And until then, we hold fast to this confession of our hope because he who promised is faithful. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to cleanse. And he's faithful to give you grace every single day. Why would you sing if you were constantly in fear of not doing enough to earn your God's favor? There's no joy in that. If religion is based upon works, it leads to despair. If my religion depends upon me, it's hopeless. So the Christian's hope is not found in what we do. It's found in what Jesus did. We needed a mediator. We needed holiness. And we found all of those in Christ. Which is why the hymn writer says, Dark is the stain that we could not hide, and what can avail to wash it away? I love this. Look! There is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Say this with me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. So here's my call today. If you've never trusted Christ, you need to stop running and stop trying. You need to give up and say, Jesus, I'm coming. And for those of you who've trusted Christ, you need to remember that for the rest of your life, your life is based on faith and promise, not performance or what you can see. And we ought to be warned of those moments when we think, oh, I got this. Hmm. Instead, the Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble, the people who say, you know what, I don't have anything. All I have is Christ. And the Bible says, when that's your confession, that's more than enough. Grace is that is greater than all our sin. Help us, Lord, to live this. We, I need your grace for sermons that sometimes don't make sense, the technical details that are so important, but are so almost otherworldly. Lord, we need your grace to know how to live every single day, how to cling to the hope of your word. Lord, we need grace for the forgiveness of our sins, grace to hold fast our confession, grace to not be proud, but to be humbled people who say, Jesus, I have nothing without you. So thank you that you're enough. Thank you that you made it possible, Lord Jesus, for us to even sing today. And thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we pray for 1.5 billion people around the world who for the next 30 days will work so hard and it will have no point. Would you open the eyes of Muslims around the world to the beauty of the promise of Jesus? Would you break the stronghold, the stronghold that the enemy has and the blindness of a works-based system that just won't work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.